0: If you're joining us online or through podcasts, we're also so glad you're with us wherever you're listening from. And I have a question to start off this morning. You know, with the Orchard, we believe the Bible. We believe in Jesus above all things. We believe Jesus said the Bible is summed up in these two simple things, love God and love people. So it makes me wonder, what's the primary promise of the Bible? Like if you were to think it through and you were going to answer that question, what would you say is the primary promise from cover to cover? I bet many of us would say that it's, it's that God loves us and God forgives us or God's going to give us eternal life. But the answer is none of those are correct. The primary promise and theme of the Bible is that God wants to be present and near his people. That's the primary promise of God's word. It begins in the Garden of Eden. And God creates humanity. Why? So that he can come down and he can be with them. Jesus' last words to his disciples were, I will be with you always. And then he sends the Holy Spirit who will be with those of us who follow Jesus. The Bible, is, the primary promise is there's a God who wants to be with you. Now, we're going to be looking at some new names of God throughout this Genesis series. And if you're just joining us as we're going through Genesis, man, you missed last week. I would go catch last week's, but we've been looking at some different names of God that have come up in the, in the last few weeks. We got El Roy, the God who sees. Then last week we had Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. But this week as we're going through Genesis, we're going to come to a name that's Yahweh Shema. And it might be new to you. Yahweh Shema it means he's the God who's there, the God who's present, the God who is close. Yahweh Shema is a beautiful name, and I've told you before that the names of God are like facets of a diamond. It's, it's, it's all God, but every name is a new facet of what he's like, a beautiful insight into something about him, the God who provides, the God who sees, and the God who is present and near today, Yahweh Shema. But I want us to be a little bit honest today, actually a lot honest. One thing that we, as the Orchard members, we keep saying is we got to be real about these things. We don't want to just come in here in church and fake it and pretend like we're all okay. If If we're honest, we would all admit there are times, and now might be one of them for you, when God doesn't seem all that present, does he? There have been times, and you might be in a time, where it seems that God isn't quite as close as you'd hoped. As you are promised, as much as you desire. Some of you have been on this journey for a while, you know in your head, you know that uh, anytime you call on God, He hears. But have you ever had the feeling that your prayers are just hitting the ceiling? Like, God, where are you? If we could be a little more honest, I think many of us would admit God doesn't feel as close as we'd hoped. Because there's those things. There's those times when when things go wrong or our circumstances go wrong or something goes wrong in the life of a loved one and we we just go, where are you, God? Like, where are you in this? If you're present, I, I can't see you in any part of this tragedy or this hardship. And then those times, there's those private moments. Maybe you've had them here in this building. Maybe you've had them by yourself where you genuinely reach out Reach out in prayer for God, hoping to receive from him, and it seems as if you get nothing. Like, we need to be honest about some of these things. Whether you're a church veteran, whether you're a rookie, or whether you're a skeptic here today, each of our hearts have at some point cried out for more of God, more in a situation where we need help. And I believe the more that we've been crying out for, I believe that's where Yahweh Shema wants to meet us. You see, what we don't need today is more head knowledge. Hey, God's there. What we don't need today is just more of that. Because what I think, if, if you're like me, your soul, your spirit is crying out to have an authentic experience with God. And if you've ever had one of those, you know there's nothing like it, to have an experience with God, to have a moment where you feel his spirit quickening you. Yes, we may have the head knowledge that God is always with us, but we can admit that sometimes that just isn't enough. We want to know he's near us. And more than that, more than just to know he's near us, I believe us a step further. We want to know that he's facing us, that he sees us, that he smiles at us, that his face is turned toward us, not away from us. Famous theologian Dallas Willard tells the story. His mother died tragically when he was a young boy. And you can imagine how that would affect a young boy's heart. Losing the sense of security and the world not being a safe place like he thought it would be. He talks about how there were nights after her death where young Dallas would lay there in his bed. He would lay there with his fear, his loneliness, loss, he was just unable to sleep. And many of those nights, he says that he could just bear it no longer. He would get up out of, his, out of his bed and leave his room and walk down the hallway to the room that used to be his mom and dad's, and now it's just his dad's. He would go into his dad's room, and he would ask his dad, oh, can, I, can I sleep with you, Daddy? And his daddy, recognizing the hurt and the fear in his son, and also, of course, going through his own pain, would say, of course, son. And so Dallas would would settle there and get in the the bed with his father, and he would lay there in the stillness and the darkness. He talks about how even there, it it didn't do it. He thought his heart wasn't any more comforted than it was previously. You see, in the darkness, little Dallas Willard, he sensed his father close, He could probably hear his father breathing. He knew his dad was present, but it wasn't enough for his heart. It was in those moments, in the dead of night, where Dallas would be laying there and he would whisper, Daddy, is your face toward me? His dad would say, yes, son and Dallas would drift off into sleep. You see, knowing that his dad was present, just knowing that his dad was near, knowing that his dad was there, for for Dallas at that age, it wasn't enough. He wanted to know that his father's face was toward him. That's a taste of of what the human soul and heart desires. That's what our spirit desires from God. Not just the knowledge that yes, he's close, yes, he's present, but a deeper experience where we know that our Heavenly Father's face is toward us. I believe that's something each of our souls and spirits craves, that, that love and that intimacy in that moment. So in those dark valleys of your life or in those dark seasons of life, we may be told that God is present. God's with you in, your, in, your, in the dark valley. And, and that, that is comforting. We need to take faith in that. But there's, there's, there's something that Dallas asked his father that, that, that maybe your soul wants to ask your heavenly father today. Is your face toward me? Daddy, are you facing me? Like, are you toward me? Are you for me? Do you see me? Today, as we preach, we're going to leave Abraham. We've been following. We're going to leave Abraham behind as he passes. And and Genesis quickly begins to turn to his son Isaac, the son of blessing, who, again, we talked about last week. But but Isaac of the four patriarchs is the one we know the least about. And in just one chapter, we move from Abraham's death to well into Isaac's adulthood. We know that Isaac married Rebekah. And they continued to live in the favor of God's blessing and the covenant that he gave to Abraham. But something happens in Isaac's life that will move us on to the next patriarch of Genesis rather swiftly. In Genesis 25, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, are going to have twin boys. The older son is Esau. The younger is Jacob. Now, the older boy, Esau, he's a a manly man. He's an outdoorsman. Jacob, not so much. Let's look how the Bible describes them here in Genesis. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. One translation calls Jacob a tent dweller, which is the Bible's nice way of saying city boy, perhaps. You got Esau, he's outside, he's camping and fishing and hiking and hunting, while Jacob is playing alone in his room with his Legos. Esau was favored by his father. We read, it, it says here in the Bible, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating wild game that Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, that might not seem like a huge deal, but in this ancient culture, the fact that Isaac, the patriarch, favors his son Esau while Rebekah favors her son Jacob, this means a whole lot to these boys and their future. You see, in the ancient of days, the eldest son, he would get two very important things. The eldest son would get, first of all, what's called the birthright. The birthright means he would inherit most of the family's um, wealth, the estate. He would carry on the family's lineage in honor. The honor would be upon him, upon his father's death. And oftentimes, it meant that the oldest son would get the entire business. He would take over the flocks. He would take over the herds. He would be the patriarch. The second honor that the oldest son would would receive is the father's blessing. The patriarch at one point would would place his, his hands on his oldest son and pray a prayer of blessing upon the son. He would pray, God, let all the favor that's been upon me now rest on my son. May all the favor that you've granted me, may it be upon my son. And the eldest son would get the birthright and the blessings. These are, these are very important, very important for their future. It meant that Esau was going to get the cattle, the servants, the land, the wealth. And when his father passed away, he would receive all the favor that was upon Isaac onto himself. Esau is in line to get this. Jacob, he wants it. We fast forward some decades and in a moment of weakness, we find Esau comes in from hunting and he's unsuccessful. And if you're a hunter, you know the feeling, Right? That's most of the time. Uh, wives, m- many of your husbands are gone right now being unsuccessful, so you, we understand in our culture what this means. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your birthright as firstborn son. Esau goes, look, I'm dying here. Like I'm dying of starvation. What good is a birthright to me now when I'm about to die? Like, like a birthright is something for then. But I need something now. Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. And so Esau took, swore an oath, thereby selling his, the rights of the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal and got up and left. A bowl of stew for a birthright. He tried to, Esau trades his, his entire future for an immediate fix. And, and that is funny and that is foolish until we realize that we do this all the time. How often are we guilty of trading the sacred things for temporary fixes, immediate gratification How often do we trade away the the virtues that matter most in life for vices that will only leave us hungrier when we're done? We trade our purity for a bowl of internet soup. We trade our character for a bowl of financial gain. Anytime I trade what is worth in heaven, a heavenly worth for an immediate fix, the price tag is always greater than I could imagine. We can't laugh too much at Esau because we need to look at our own lives and see where we are trading the things of God for immediate and temporary gratification. But Jacob, he walks away from this moment now having the birthright. He's not satisfied. He he wants the blessing as well. As they continue to grow, Isaac feels like he's going to die soon. Now he ends up going to be living for a lot longer, but he feels like his days are coming to an end. And so he wants to to bring Esau in and pray the family blessing over him. So we read here in verse two, I'm an old man now, said Isaac. I don't know when I may die. Take your bow and quiver full of arrows, Esau, and go out in the open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish, that venison stroganoff, whatever it would be, that stew. Bring it here for me to eat. Then I'll pronounce blessing that belongs to you that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. To mark the moment of this blessing, he asked Esau to bring him his favorite bowl of wild game stew. But something curious happens here. You see, someone was listening and hears this conversation. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, hears the entire thing. She hears the request for a wild game soup and she comes up with this plan and she immediately runs to the kitchen and begins whipping up her own batch of stew. There's a lot of stew in this family. A lot of soups, you know? Now you get another cookbook, you'd think. You know, try something else. It's okay. She comes up with a plan and she brings Jacob in for Jacob to pretend to be Esau and get this blessing. But listen to Jacob's response. He says, Look, look, Mom, Jacob replied to Rebecca, my brother Esau, he's a hairy man. And my skin is smooth. <laughs> What if what if Father touches me? Which he will. He puts his hands on his son to convey the blessing. What happens if he touches me? He'll know it's me trying to trick him, and if he figures out in the middle of a blessing that it's actually a trick, he will bring a curse upon me. Like, like if, if he figures this out, it's gonna be a curse. So, Rebecca, she tells her son Jacob to go change into something a little more furry. And they take some goat hair and put it on the back of the neck and the forearm, the places the father would would hold for the blessing so hairy Jacob is now armed with a steamy bowl of wild game soup he enters his blind father's tent hoping to pass off as Esau and the trick works and Jacob exits that tent with the birthright and the blessing it's a good moment for Jacob a bad moment for Esau. When when the truth of this comes out, it says that Isaac shakes in sadness when he realizes what's happened and Esau is enraged. You can imagine this. He swears an oath that he will kill his younger brother. Jacob hears of this. He hears of this oath. He hears of the anger. Of course, he's going to be angry. And he immediately goes from family blessing to family outcast. Jacob has to flee he, can't, he just tricked his father. His brother wants him dead. So he has to leave the family and go travel across country. And this is no celebratory blessed son with a birthright, leaving to go strike out on his own. No, there was no fanfare. There's no, nothing like that. This was a midnight camel ride to nowhere. He's just fleeing. He's getting away. It's a disgraced son. His name means deceiver. He's fleeing an angry family. He flees his brother's rage, and in Genesis 28, it says that Jacob, reach, it says, Jacob reaches a certain place in Genesis 28, which I, that stood out to me as if somebody had circled it. And here's the reason. The Bible is notorious. If there's a pile of sticks, somebody in the Bible has named it. Like, like, like they name everything. Everything has a name. Everything has a meaning, a meaning and then just Jacob, he, he's fleeing, and he stops for the night at a certain place. That means this is just nothing. There's nothing special about this place where he stops. And my mind wonders what Jacob would have felt that night. And if you put yourself in the story, put yourself into Jacob and wonder as he laid down and made a rock for a pillow, what was he feeling? Because you know those moments. You have those quiet moments. We all have them. It's the moments between when you're awake and asleep. It's those last quiet moments of the day where our hearts are often the hardest on ourselves, where things are often the clearest. The first thing I think that Jacob felt was very alone. The family he had loved, the family he had learned to live with, he was now an outcast. And he had very little chance of reconciling. He had tricked his dad, enraged his brother. And for you as well, loneliness might be one of those things that you feel as you lay down in the moments before sleep, perhaps you're in the midst or in the aftermath of a broken relationship. Maybe you're in the midst of a breaking one and the heartache and the hardship and the loneliness that comes with that. And in these silent, lonely, dark moments, like Jacob and like young Dallas Willard, perhaps you wonder, God, are you with me? In my loneliness, do you still see me? Is your face toward me? We also know Jacob came from a wealthy family. Anything he had wanted, he'd probably gotten. His, his, his father was wealthy, his grandfather was wealthy, but he's cut off, his credit card's deactivated. It says he left with only his staff. Like, he, he, it's behind him, it's gone. How would he make ends meet? Like, where would he go? What's the plan, Jacob? You got a birthright and a blessing for a place you left. Good luck with that. He was human like us. And I bet bet he laid there at night wondering, what do I do? Where do I go? Uh, I had a five-year plan and this was not it. So maybe like Jacob, you lie awake at night and you have numbers going through your head. And not the counting sheep kind of numbers. Real numbers with real consequences. Like bills to pay and debt. Groceries. Payments lying there with the weight of financial uncertainty upon your chest. Perhaps you've wondered, God, where are you in this mess? Like, where are you? Are you for me? Is your face toward me? I bet Jacob laid there for sure in his own guilt and shame. I mean, he he just he just tricked his father. You know, it's those kind of quiet moments before sleep that the, the, the consequences of our decisions have a certain, like, nauseating clarity as we see what we've done in our past. And there can be shame and guilt. And how many of us lie there in those, in those still minutes playing tapes of things that we have done or that's been done to us over and over and over? And we hear, we, we just have the guilt and the shame. And we might ask, God, after all that I've done, do you even still want anything to do with me? Do you even want to look at me? Or imagine God just wearing a frown at us for what we have done. We have all had these times. We've all had those nights. We've all had these stressful seasons and big changes and and tragedies and struggles. We've all gone through these that, that cause us to ask these deeper questions like, God, where are you? And are you for me? And Daddy, is your face toward me? And the thought that God is just somewhere around isn't quite comforting. The thought that, yes, God is near for some of those moments, it just isn't enough. We desire more. We want more. Like Dallas Willard described, Daddy, are you facing is your face toward me? It's in, it's in that mood, it's on that night where God does something and he shows up extraordinarily in Jacob's life. It's the first recorded dream in the Bible, Genesis twenty-eight twelve. Jacob sees a ladder with angels going up and going down and he sees God standing above him and the words that Yahweh speaks over him must have been like water to Jacob's parched spirit. Listen to this. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. Well, he knows God of Abraham. That's his grandfather. He's heard the stories. He's heard all the stories of, Gra- of old grandpappy Abe and how God promised him these things and has a, a covenant with him. He goes, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. He, he's heard the story from his dad. He's heard his dad's account probably of when he was tied up and God provided a ram. He's, he's heard the stories. But God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. In this incredible moment, the heavenly father blesses someone who has just tricked a blessing of his earthly father. The grace of God is incredible. Yahweh tells Jacob that Abraham's ancient covenant will now be upon him. Not with Esau. Can you imagine this? This is huge. This, this is supernatural birthright and blessing all in one. All that I was giving, God would say, all that I was giving to, you, to Abraham and Isaac, it is now with you. But God continues. He says this, I am with you. But not just with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. Now to watch over someone, your face must be towards. I'm going to be with you, but my face, is, my face is toward you, my boy. My face is toward you. I, I will see you. I will watch over you. Not only did God co- covenant promise, but Yahweh Shema promises Jacob that his holy presence will go with him and before him and watch over him. To a lonely person at an ordinary place, can you imagine how it must have felt for Jacob to hear those words. When he wakes up, he is in a completely different headspace. And he says something, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says something I hope that we all get the privilege of saying sometime this week. He says, Genesis 28, 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I love that one. I I hope we say that every day at some point. Surely the Lord was with me in my office, and I was unaware of it. Surely the Lord was with me in my truck and I was just unaware of it. God was here. Remember, it was just a certain place. It was an ordinary place. He was here. I didn't know he was here, Jacob says. He went to bed alone and anxious and abandoned, but God was there with him for him and he didn't even know it. In honor of this moment, Jacob takes a stone pillow, turns it on his side and adds some more rocks and he renames the place Bethel, which means house of the Lord. This is a special place, house of the Lord, where Yahweh Shema became a reality. Now, what does this mean to us? It means that Yahweh Shema can be present and we fail to recognize it. Was Yahweh Shema present the night before, before Jacob fell asleep? Yes. In fact, if God is always with us, If God is always with us, then isn't it true that we're most always unaware of his presence? If he's always with us, we are most often unaware of his presence. Jacob Jacob assumed it was an ordinary place. He assumed it became extraordinary. But in truth, Yahweh Shema had been present the whole time. And he just was unaware of it. And so he turned his pillow his rock pillow into a monument and called it Bethel. Tonight, when you lay down on your pillow, you remember that the same God who spoke to Jacob, the same God who revealed himself to Jacob and said, I am with you and I will watch over you. My face is toward you. The same God as Jacob laid there in anxiety and loneliness and wondering what's next and where are you and are you going to be with me in this and do you hear me? And and the same God is there present with you and you're most likely unaware of it. But you can pray tonight, Yahweh Shema, reveal yourself. Speak to me, be present with me, show me where you are. In fact, as this reality sinks into our life, we will begin to realize that God is always with us, his face is always toward us, and we're just unaware of it. Then in my office, in my truck, in my house, in my ups, in my dark seasons, in my hardships, he is with me, but not just with me, his face is toward me and toward you. When you know that God's love and face is toward you, you know what it does? It changes you. There are a few things in this, and here's a little example. There are a few things I love in this world more than my daughter Selah, a little seven-year-old. When we first uh, had her, I read somewhere in a book that said that daughters change the heart of a man like nothing else and I had no idea how true that would be. I love my girl. And it was years ago we were at Mountain Fair and you know, bongos are going of course, there's thousands of people and, and, and she has a, a twirl dress on and she's just dancing and she's dancing right there in front of me, I'm watching her, there's thousands of people around but you know what, she's completely unaware of them. She's, and dads you'll remember this, if, you, if, if you've ever had a daughter, um, when they dance they turn around and what do they do? They want to know that you're looking. Like she'll spin and then look around and look. I'll go, yes. And then she'll spin some more and then, yes. It's just an ongoing of, of me affirming that I see you and my face is toward you. And she's a mountain Fair oblivious to everybody because there's this daddy-daughter moment. And then um, some people come up and start talking to me. Just some friends. And so I'm like, hi, I, hey, daughter. I see you. Like, and then I'm talking over here to them. And oh, yes, yes. And... um. And 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 I'm I'm doing the back and forth thing, you know, and um and then it kind of gets kind of deep and kind of heavy, and so I have to turn more to to talk to them, and 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 as I do, as, as I look over at her, still I see her twirl slow. I see her face fall. I see her countenance kind of droop. And 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 I'm fully engaged in this conversation, which got very heavy very quickly. And then in the middle of the bongos, in the middle of the mountain fair, in the middle of the thousands of people, one little girl stamped her foot and said, Daddy, look at me! (laughs) And I said, excuse me, we have to finish this another time. And I turned back to my daughter, and she began to dance, her eyes lit up, and she twirled like no girl has twirled before. I mean, she was cleared for takeoff. (laughs) She was dancing. And you know what's, what's, what's so funny? You see, it wasn't enough that I was close. And you know what could have happened? A really good pastor could have come up to her and said, now you know, Selah, your father's presence is just right there. He's near. Your father isn't near you. He is fully present in this moment. He's present. He's close. He's near. But that wouldn't have been enough. She didn't want to know that her daddy was just close, that I was near. She needed to know that her daddy's face was toward her and it, toward her, and it made all the difference. And that's how we were made as well. There are times in our life where we're like, God, are you? it's not enough to know that you're near. It's your face toward me. I need you. I am breaking down here. And when you begin to know that God's face is toward you and his love is for you, it changes everything. Jacob was changed. He leaves Bethel different, a different person than he showed up at Bethel. He thought a birthright or a blessing would solve his internal issues. He thought if I can get the birthright and blessing, I'll be okay, but it didn't. He thought accomplishment and getting the wealth of his father could fill that void, but it didn't. And here in this one moment, Yahweh Shema touches his soul. He gets a taste. He gets just a taste of something, of this eternal God, and it changes everything about how he walks from this point on. You see, deep below our mind, deep below our body, deep below our spirit, deep below our, our desires is our spirit. And our spirit has spiritual needs. You see, we were created with this deep place within us that only God can fill. So it's no wonder. It's no wonder that the things that in this life that we thought would fulfill us never really did. It's no wonder that that person, that relationship, or that marriage, you thought it would settle and answer all those questions, but it didn't. It's no wonder that you thought kids would come and they would be the the last piece that would settle something deep within you, and it just pushed it farther down. It's no wonder... That the right house or the right job, the right career, the right move, whatever it could be, none of them quite filled our spirit the way we hoped it would. Not at the level of our spirit. Not at the level where those questions are asked. It's no wonder that the apple that the enemy tempted Adam and Eve with to solve all their problems, it's no wonder it didn't fulfill them. And here's why. Because the fruits of this world will never quench the hunger for eternity that God has placed within you. The fruits of this world, no matter how good and how great, will never quench the hunger of eternity that God has placed within you. Inside each of us, we have an infinite need, and man, we try to fill it with temporary things. But if you have an infinite need, only something infinite can truly fill that which tells us we were created by an infinite God. You know, it'd be nice to think that after Bethel, that um, Jacob, that his life was easy, right? I mean, when you have an experience with God, a real experience with God, it's smooth sailing from there, right? Puppy dogs, rainbows, all those things. No, no, no because Yahweh Shema doesn't promise to make life easy. He just promises to be with us and his face toward us even when it's not, And so many years later, many years later, Jacob has now accumulated massive wealth, servants, flocks. He has a huge amount of wealth. And he's traveling back to his hometown. And his brother, Esau, sends out a welcoming committee, himself included, of 400 armed men to welcome Jacob back home. As far as Jacob knows, Esau is intending to fulfill the oath that he made when they were younger to kill his younger brother. Jacob was, of course, nervous and anxious. And much like that evening previous in Bethel, you know what he did? He left everyone else behind, and he went and camped out by himself. I think he did that on purpose. He, he wanted to hear. He wanted to, he wanted to have something from God. He, he laid down there that night with all the anxiety, all the emotion. He would meet Esau tomorrow, and everything he'd done could come to an end as Esau decided it's over. And in Genesis 32, it's one of the most curious events in the entire Bible. I wanted to preach a whole sermon on this at some point. God shows up in physical form, a theophany, as we've talked before in the past. But instead of a sweet meeting, they begin to wrestle. They begin to wrestle. And Jacob furiously struggles with God. and Now, now God could have whipped Jacob in, in, in an instant, but God's not interested in defeating Jacob. He's interested in transforming Jacob. They grapple throughout the night, and Jacob refuses to let go, pleading for God to bless him. And and right here, three name changes take place. The first one is when God asks Jacob his name. Now, God knows his name. He's asking his identity, who are you? And Jacob answers, I'm Jacob, Yaakov, the deceiver. That's what his name means. God replies, you shall no longer be called Jacob. Your name shall be called Israel. Israel means struggles with God. It's the name of of his people to this day. The second name change is rather amazing because previously in the Bible, God had referred to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Two really good patriarchs, right? That's Jacob's grandfather and father. But if, if you read past this moment onto the rest, a lot of the rest of the Bible, this new name shows up the God of Jacob. You see, God knows all of Jacob's shortcomings, all his failings, and instead of glossing over it, he redeems it and makes it glorified. He takes the name. He he says, I am the God of Jacob. He even keeps his old name. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's amazing how Yahweh Shema can take and redeem our old past. And there are things in your life that God wants to take. There are things in your past that you don't even want to think about. Things that were, you've done, things that were done to you. And Yahweh Shema wants to take the things that have hurt us the most. And that's where he wants to do some of the most beautiful work he can. You see, when you encounter Yahweh Shema, he doesn't make those things disappear. He makes them holy. I'll say this. The worst circumstances I have faced in my life, the most heartbreaking Places, private moments of my life where I have been crying face down under the carpet until I could cry no longer. In those moments, in those places of breaking, God has brought the most beauty and the most healing ministry for others. In the worst of my life, Yahweh Shema has transformed it into something holy. And he does it here with Jacob. God uses the worst of our past to transform us and to reveal himself through us to other people. I mean, Jacob was probably ashamed of who he was. His name was evidence of all of his sin. His name, Jacob the deceiver, was evidence of his sin. And God says, I got that name. I'll take that. I am the God of Jacob. Orchard, God can take the worst thing that you've ever been through, that has ever done, and use it for redemption for yourself and for others. He can take the dung heap of our sin and make it into something that's a monument to his grace. He can take the failings of our past and reveal it for victories in our future. That's what he does. See, that's what Yahweh Shema does. He is present. He is near. He sees you. He is facing you. His face is toward you. He takes your darkest seasons and in those places does the most work. The third name change in the story. After an evening of being in God's presence, Jacob wants to rename this plot of ground. Like he kind of has a knack for this, right? He goes, I'm kind of good at naming things. Like, like he named that ordinary place on the road Bethel. and that like, I just wrestled God. I should probably name this place, right? I mean, so what would you name the place where you wrestled God? I, I, jiu-jitsu is my uh, hobby sport of choice. And when you're grappling somebody, it's a very up-close and personal thing. You get to know people real quick, which is always interesting when people from a church, they, they sign up for the jiu-jitsu and they're, they're, they get, I say, do you ever get to wrestle your pastor before? <laughs> I say, if you, if you tap me, you don't have to tithe, but if I tap you, you have to double tithe. <laughs> Just kidding. But they always have to double tithe. What do you name, what do you name the, the, the plot of ground where you have wrestled, where you've grappled with God? You've had this moment. What word would do it justice? If you're reading in Genesis, it says Jacob builds an altar there, and in in the language it says he names the place Penuel, and Penuel means face of God. Because it was there he grappled with the face of God, face to face. Not only was God near him, not only was God God with him, but Yahweh Shema was, was for him and his face was toward him. After you have an encounter with God and you realize that God's face is toward you, it will change you forever. And we see amazing transformation in Jacob's life. Once he realizes that Yahweh Shema is is with him and for him, he, he never walks the same again. He changed his name, but more than that, he changed his heart. He changed his character. And God wants to change you as well. And this is the offer of Yahweh Shema. Character, deep character, change and transformation transformation in our past and our present and for our future. And so we need to begin to, here's here's the thing, we need to begin to open our eyes and be aware of where God is because what often happens is we say, where are you, God? And as Jacob would say, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. So it's time for us to open our eyes and open our radar for Yahweh Shema, that he is near, that he sees us and his face is for us. As we go into communion this morning, and as you take the, uh, the bread and the juice, the symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus. Let us once again remember that Yahweh Shema came in the flesh and saw people face to face. And let's thank Jesus for his sacrifice. But let's also remember as we take communion today, the symbol of his death and resurrection, that there will be a day where those who follow Jesus will see him face to face again that we will see the face of our Lord, the face of our God. So, So, Father, we pray that your face would shine upon us this morning. Lord, for those in dark places, in dark seasons, and big questions, and big anxieties hanging over them, Father, I pray that you would reveal where you are in the story, where you are in their life, and that they would see that your face is toward them. Father, for those in shame today who think you wear a frown with your arms crossed. No, no, your arms aren't crossed because Jesus spread his arms wide, and you hold a smile of love for your sons and daughters. Yahweh Shema, would you reveal yourself to us this very day. In Jesus' name, amen.